Well, good morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 4. We're going to continue our series, and I should introduce myself. Last time, um, last time I was up, I, I did something stupid, and now I'm doing it now as I ramble. Um, but I, I think I'd said something like, it'd been a long time, and so I'm Kyle, and I never really said what I, what I do. So I'm a pastor here at Harvest. I'm the pastor of Biblical Soul Care. That's my title, so Biblical Counseling, and uh, I'm here to preach this morning. All right, so let's get on to it. We're going through a series, and I'm going to continue the series that Pastor Kevin's been leading us through, <clears throat> looking to Jesus, and so that brings us to Matthew chapter 4, not far from where we were uh, last week in Matthew 3, so Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11, and so I'm going to read it aloud, and then we're going to dig into this passage together. Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if, you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Temptation, where will you turn? The title of our sermon this morning. I'm wondering if many of you hear the word temptation or got the e-news and saw temptation and thought, oh no, I'm not sure I really want to show up today. I know what a sermon like that is going to be. It's going to be a guilt sermon and I'm really not up for that. Uh, maybe for some of you, you think temptation, you think, I've already failed on the way to church this morning. I wonder how many of us have. You think, well, that's easy, temptation. I just think the grocery store last week or my time with the kids or my interactions with my spouse or my friends or at work and just day to day, the mundane, this happens all the time. And for some of you, you think that. And for others, you think right now, temptation, and it brings a whole lot of other memories. And, and right now, even as you hear the word temptation, you have some very heavy things come to mind. You think of habits that you've had as long as you can remember, things that you call addictions. You have a spouse that is scared that today is going to be the day again, or maybe you're scared wondering, how much longer can I hang on? The question is with temptation, when it comes, where will you turn? Strategies work for a time. Strategies are fine. Accountability, maybe you need to drop friends, maybe you need to change friends or phone a friend, maybe you need a new location, a new job, maybe you just need some food, maybe you need a good night's sleep. 
maybe need to run. And those things might be fine. But maybe you're going to fall again. And what happens when you fall? You turn to those things again. You turn now maybe to excuses. You say, well, I was tired. Or I was just hungry. Or as we jokingly say, hangry. I've been in chronic pain. And it won't go away. I don't get a break. I was caught off guard. The devil made me do it. I was alone. It's just who I am. Look, it's not a big deal. But here's the thing with temptation. And this is not a guilt sermon. This is reality. Just so you know, temptation um, is real. And temptation is a big deal. It is a big deal. We're told in Scripture that Satan is a roaring lion. He's looking to devour us. He's a murderer. And knowing where to turn in temptation is not just a matter of looking like a better Christian this morning. Knowing where to turn in temptation is the matter of life and death. This is the truth. This is what Scripture tells us. And we aren't messing around this morning, and we're certainly not looking to try to um, get puffed up this morning to say, let's just do better. This is not what Matthew 4 is showing us at all. When temptation comes, there is only one place to turn. And it's God. And maybe you already knew that. And maybe for you, you think this morning, well, I know that's the right answer, right? Jesus is the right answer. And maybe you think, I have tried that, and it's not working. I am turning to God, and the addiction is still there. I tried that this week, and you know what? This week, it didn't work. Well, as we look this morning at Matthew 4 into the temptation of Jesus, we're going to see not only how Christ turned to God, we're going to see that, we're going to learn how to turn to God ourselves, but what I want you to see, and maybe even remember, this is, this is called, the series is called Looking to Jesus, but this would preach whether we're in this series or not. What I want you to see is how Christ does for us what we can't do. That's what you need to see this morning. Christ, through Matthew 4, 1 to 11, does something for us that we can't do. So this is much more than just looking to Christ as an example. This is looking to Christ as the one that fulfills the law for us. The one who is victorious for you and I. So when temptation comes, there's only one place to turn. And the first is this. Turn to God always and obey Him. Turn to God always and obey Him. Look at verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I wonder when you feel weakest. I mean, I was thinking as I was prepping this, how many people are going to think right away, man, that's going to pop. Kyle's probably going to have five points on hungry. Right? I can eat. If you know me, I can eat well. When are you most weak? You look at what you go through and, and, and think maybe it's when you're most tired or maybe it is when you're hungry. Maybe it is when you haven't got the sleep you need or there's just no break in sight. Or maybe it's when you're alone or there's clear spiritual attacks. You literally feel like you have the enemy in your home. Jesus is experiencing all of these. 
you could say he's having a rough month. Luke 4 is the parallel passage to this. And in Luke 4, it looks like not just. In Matthew, he highlights these three. But in Luke 4, the beginning of of chapter 4, it looks like he's being tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. And we just get three highlights in Matthew. Christ is having a rough week, you could say for sure. When are you the weakest? And I had a counseling friend of mine say this once to me, and I thought it was really helpful. How do you admit that something's going on, and it's tough, and it's brutal, and at the same time not make it an excuse for sin? And he described it this way, and I found it helpful. He said, those moments are occasions for sin, but it's not the cause. Okay, it's real. You're hungry, that's an occasion for sin, but it's not the cause. God never will say to you, oh, I'm I'm sorry, yeah, you were hungry. That's fine then. And so Jesus is in an ultimate occasion for sin, but he is not going to sin. Look what he says, or look what Satan says in this context. He says to Christ, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So in this occasion for sin, Satan comes in. There's no accident, the timing of this, in what he says right here. And he says, If you are the Son of God. Now he's not asking the question in the sense of, Are you really? Like maybe you're not. He knows. I mean, the demons were the ones that shouted out, You are the Holy One of God. You're the Son of God. Don't torture us. What Satan is saying is, if you are the Son of God, if you really are, then what kind of Son of God are you? Shouldn't you be able to turn stones to bread? I mean, if you are the Son of God, shouldn't you be able to do that? It's kind of like someone saying to a mother, if you're a mother, like, can't you multitask? If you really are a mother, they're not questioning if they're a mother, but shouldn't a mother be able to multitask? Shouldn't a mother be able to look after their kids? If you're a pastor, shouldn't you be able to fix my problem? If you really are a doctor, can't you find the cure? And this is what Satan is saying. What kind of son of God are you? Well, Jesus knows, and we know. What kind of son of God is he? Well, he is the beloved son of God, isn't he? He is the one and only, and he's the one who really can turn stones to bread. But he was not told to turn stones to bread. His heavenly father didn't say, turn stones to bread. He had a job to do. As the son of God, knowing who he was, he had a job to do. And so he responds this way. Look at verse 4. He answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What he is saying here is that the son of God will live by and be directed by and be compelled by and motivated by every word that comes from God, period. And he would do that even if it meant he was going to be hungry. Even if it meant that he might starve to death. If you don't eat for 40 days, doctors will tell you, and I'm just guessing right now, I'm throwing this randomly out there, that you're probably going to die soon. We will die without food, and some of us a lot sooner than others. I'm about a four-day guy, I think. He is in a situation that truly is a potential of life and death. He's not comfortably at home. He's in the wilderness. 
And he is going to obey every word of God, even if starvation and ultimately to the cross, even if it means crucifixion, bearing the wrath of God. See, Christ was led into the desert not simply to be tempted and yet come out without sin, and then we could say, look, we have an example. This guy, Jesus, what an example for us, and we should try better to not be tempted. He didn't go into the desert for that. That, that is true that he's an example, but that's not why. He was tempted for us. He was tempted as our substitute. Now, we often think substitute. We think a punishment. He was punished in our place, and that's true. That's called a passive obedience. Okay, his passive obedience, that he bore the wrath, that he took um, the cross for us. But he also was a substitute that needed to get through the desert as part of his active obedience. Okay, he had to actively obey the Lord for us. He had to righteously live as a son of God. And when Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God, I want you to see this. This is so significant. He's not just quoting scripture that fits the purpose of the moment. He is doing that, but he's also quoting from a specific place for a specific reason. Do you know where this is from? This is from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. I'll have it on the screen for you, but if you have your Bibles, I invite you to hold one finger here, and we're going to be turning to the Old Testament to see what is Jesus saying and what he says. Yes, he has a job to do, but let's look at what he says. Deuteronomy 8, 3, and then the context. I'm going to read verses 1 to 4 to help us know where he's drawing this from. The whole commandment that I command you today, you should be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. This is being spoken to Israel. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Does that sound familiar? Jesus was 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. This is not an accident. Jesus knows what he's quoting. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not, or depend on yourself. Verse 3, he humbled you and let you hunger. Does that sound familiar? And fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor your fathers know. Literally provided for Israel something that no one could predict because it didn't exist. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. So for 40 years in the wilderness, God was calling Israel to obedience, to trust, to dependence on him always in every circumstance. And he says, if you were to do that, Israel, you know the rest would come. That, that's life, is what he's saying. You think life is bread. It's not. There is a truth in the gospel that you can starve to death today and have life. Life is living by every word. We, we see bumper stickers all the time, don't we? Hockey is life. Hunting is life. Shopping is life. I haven't seen one yet. 
to say living by every word of God is life. It's maybe a little wordy, and maybe that's why it's not there. What is life? Hockey's life? Well, you need food. You need food. Hockey can't. You know what's being said, and that's what's being said by God. He says you live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So here's three opportunities to obey God no matter what. No matter the consequences. No matter the consequences. Jesus faced starvation as Israel had in the desert. It's a real problem. If you didn't eat soon, I would say at this point even, even at 40 days and 40 nights, I mean, I don't know how long he would have had medically. He's at the brink. Israel is brought to the brink all the time. When you face real problems, will you obey every word of God? Will you say, I'll obey unless, unless my kids are going to be angry at me? Unless my spouse is going to be mad at me, unless my friends think that I'm weird, unless I lose my job, unless it causes me anxiety, unless I'll be lonely. And we look at the consequences and it stops us, as it did Israel, from obeying every word of God. And there's times where you have to say, no, I will. I will. Why? Why would I obey regardless of the consequence? Because it's life. Because that is life. The second opportunity to obey is no matter the inconvenience. Now Jesus faced the same inconvenience of hunger that Israel did. There's no grocery store close by. Every watering hole was empty. And Israel had zero tolerance for this. You look through the Old Testament, zero, Israel's patience was like that of a gnat. I mean, they just, as soon as there wasn't water, that's it. We're done. And that's part of the allure of sin, is that it's convenient. Sin is easy. I mean, you know, and we, we could talk all day about how easy it is. Jesus had before him stones, yes. Not bread. But he's the son of God, and he literally can speak to that stone, or touch that stone, and he's going to get fed. The allure of sin is the convenience of it. You think about any now, a couple clicks, a couple touches, a couple swipes. It's right there. How easy is it sometimes just to say a word? Easy, I just get that off my chest. It's not convenient to obey. It's not convenient to go to small group. It's not convenient tonight. It's not convenient to get up in the morning. I'm not a morning person. It's not convenient to speak at times. I'm introverted. It's not convenient to be quiet. I'm extroverted. I'm too tired. I'm too scared. I had plans. I can't help but think, as, as I look at the convenience of what's there with sin, uh, A.W. Tozer, I believe it was him. I was listening to a sermon of his. And he has this voice, and he was talking about convenience. And he said, the gospel it's not convenient. It's not convenient. It's never convenient. And he talks about the cross and what Christ did. Our faith is not a convenient faith. We continually die to ourselves. No matter the inconvenience, we must obey. Why? Because it's life. And third, no matter the confusion, Jesus was surrounded by stones and sand like Israel so many times. 
you have to remember, he's in this place, and it's been 40 days and 40 nights. Remember what we looked at last week. What happened when the, the heavens ripped open? What was the voice that spoke? You can look at it there. What's just, just back, like one verse before chapter 4. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Do you think Jesus was thinking, did I hear that right? Like, this is confusing. Not only am I in a wilderness, and I'm surrounded by just sands and stone and no water, I have Satan right here. You think about Israel. How many times Israel's told, you're, you're my people, you're my chosen people, yet what did they face over and over again? Confusion. That's just the character of the Christian life. They faced walls, didn't know how to get through them. They had seas and rivers they couldn't cross, and deserts, and no water, and no food, giants, armies that outnumbered them. They were confused all the time. So when you face confusion, will you obey every word that comes from God? What will it take for you? Is it just a diagnosis from the doctor, and you're like, that's confusing. Why? It doesn't make any sense. And is that all it will take for you to be tempted then, to not obey here? You say, I've been close to God. I'm sacrificing, I'm serving, and life seems to be getting worse. It doesn't make sense. There's no one suitable to marry. I'm waiting and the clock is ticking. Whatever situation, there's no hope visually in sight. And here's the thing, and, and God is telling us, and Jesus knows it by what he quotes, you don't need to visually see hope. We look to the gospel. You don't visually need to see, here's the logical conclusion. He said, what did he do? He brought manna from heaven. No one saw it. No one could see it coming. It was something brand new. God does this stuff. So no matter the confusion, we need to obey because it's life. We must turn to God always and obey him no matter what it means. And second, this, turn to God but never to test him. Turn to God but never to test him. Look again now in verse 5. He says, uh, we're told this, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, uh, did they walk there? I would say this is um, a vision, a, a real vision, um, either swept away to that point supernaturally and like actually standing there, but regardless of how it happened, he's there. We're told that. He's there on the peak of the temple, and he's there with Satan. And again, you have an occasion for sin. He's in the holy city. This is God's city. He's on top of the temple. What do we know about the temple? Well, the temple is where God resides. In a sense, he's close to God. And this is the occasion of sin that Satan uses. Look at verse 6 now. So here he is, close, in a sense, in the presence of God. And Satan says, if you are the Son of God, there he says it again, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone, it's almost like Satan is saying, oh, you live by every word that comes from the mouth of God? Then here's a word from God. There's no accident that Satan uses scripture here. And for many of us, this is the trump card. 
That's all it takes. Oh, the Bible says that? Oh, well, okay then. It's time to jump. Maybe you're in the Word. Maybe you are close, in a sense, to the presence of God. You feel God's presence. You're, you're worshiping all the time. I mean, your home is just filled with worship music. You've been obedient. And maybe you think you have immunity then. I can, in that sense, do kind of whatever I want. I've got my verse. Just grab and go. Here's my verse. I know what I'm doing. And here we go. But does the Bible actually say what Satan says it says? Well, it does. He quotes from Psalm 91. Psalm 91, verses 11 to 12, and I'll read it for you. You can turn there. You can write it down and look later. It says this. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now it's not word for word, but he gets the point of it. And Satan uses the point of it. And it looks like here that you have immunity, so it's time to jump. But what has happened here is Satan has ripped that out of context, not so much out of Psalm 91, but out of the rest of Scripture. And that is a massive problem. What will it take to make you jump? I was in a plane not too long ago. It's a couple weeks ago, and uh, you know the, the drill. You're sitting in the flight attendant, and their kids are screaming, and you're like, oh, but this is better than driving, so this is good. Praise God, right? And the flight attendant goes through what? They go through... Um, basically what to do if you crash, which is a great way to start any journey, right? When there's flames and everyone's screaming, this is what you're going to have to do. So you go through it, and, and the person goes through it, and I have to tell you that's usually when I sleep. I just zone out. Anyhow, so you've got a pamphlet there as well that you can go through, and my son Owen was with me on this flight, and he's going through everything because he's bored. So he's reading every single thing. Here's what you need to know. They tell you plainly how to open the door of a plane and how to jump out. If you do that at the wrong time, it's not going well. Right? Right? You can say it says in the manual, and the flight attendant said, straight from the mouth of the flight attendant, open the door and jump out of the plane. And then you go and do it. And you jump. And this is what Satan is doing, is he's taking the very words that are spoken. This, yeah, technically are true. And he rips them out of context, and in that case, they're a lie. When you take sections from God's word, or the spiritual equivalent, God spoke to me. God told me. Be very cautious on what you do with that. And if you use that outside of the greater context of Scripture, you will open yourself up to all sorts of temptation. And in this case, it was a temptation to test God. Look at verse 7. Look how Jesus responds. Jesus said to him, Again, you can underline that if you want in your Bible. Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, if you're going to use the word properly, 
there's probably no better person to do this than the Son of God. The one who Scripture says is the Word. And here is the very Word quoting the Word of God. If anyone could say, God spoke to me, it would be the Son of God. Do not miss that Jesus Christ quotes Scripture. You can't miss that. He says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And this word test is basically tempt. Don't tempt. Don't tempt God. You're tempting me right now. Don't tempt God. We're not to do that. Don't call God to sin in a sense. Unbelievable. Now, in what ways was Satan using Scripture to tempt God? How was he using this as a test? Well, again, Jesus quotes something that's not random. He quotes Deuteronomy 6. Okay, Deuteronomy 6.16, he says this, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. What happened at Massa? What happened at Massa? They tested God. What was it? Well, apparently Massa was the name for a place where you can't find water. Massa was one of those places you don't want to go when you're thirsty, apparently. There was two uh, instances in Scripture, and I believe they're two separate accounts. One where Moses was told not to strike a rock, so water would come out, and he struck it. And he failed, and he didn't enter the promised land. And then there's another instance, seen in Exodus 17, and you can turn there. And this is the one I believe Jesus is explicitly referring to. And it's where Moses was told to strike the rock, and he did, and water came out. But there was a testing that went on there. And Jesus says, do not test God like, like what went down at Massa. And here's what happened, and you can read it, Exodus 17, and it'll be on the screen for you, 1 to 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? There it is. But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa, which that means quarreling. It's a fitting name. And Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and, and listen to this, because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So you, you get the story. They're thirsty. They don't have water. There's a rock again. I don't know if there's significance to that. And what happens? They test God. Look at verse 7, right? They sin by asking a question. Is the Lord among us or not? Now, it's not the question so much, but in how the question's asked. You can ask God questions, but it's important how you ask them. Um, thinking similar, my, my kids could come home and they could say, is, is mom here or not? 
Is, they could say it, is mom here or not? Right, is she? Where's mom? They ask that all the time anyhow. She's the provider of all good things, right? Or they could come home and say like, is mom here or not? And what they could mean by that is, what in the world is mom up to? Where is our mother? She made some promises and she's not fulfilling them. Like, is mom here or not? Again, this is going to happen again. She's neglecting us. She doesn't care. And they can be putting mom to the test. And this is what Israel is doing. Now, I want to help apply this for you, put some wheels to it. So here's two ways that I'll be tempted to test God. How does this actually work? Well, the first is this. I will try to control him. That's what Israel did. Israel commanded God, give us water to drink, they said. Now, you can, give, you can um, command God things. You can say, God, forgive me. And that is fitting and good and right. But it is always done in humility. This command is not in humility. And you know that? Why? Because what did we read? Moses said, they're about to stone me. <laughs> they're not asking a question. They're, they're saying, this is how it has to go down. And if it doesn't, manipulation. I've got a stone in my hand. So let's get going. And that's what's happening is they're, to- they're, they're testing God by trying to control him. It's times like this when we say, if you don't do this, God, then I'm done. God, this time, if you don't, I've got this stone and I'm done. I'm not reaching out again. That was too tough. If you don't come through, I'm done. Or I'm going to do this, God. And you have to forgive me. It's not a big deal. I'm going to do it. And you have to forgive me. Is he going to forgive me or what? But here I go. I mean, what else can I do? We try to force God's hand. Or we say, I'm close to you. God, I'm here in your presence. Right? You know what I'm doing for you. So I deserve this. I deserve a break. And we put God to the test. And ironically, we can't control God. You don't want to be trying to control God. You can't control him. When temptation comes, I must be actually controlled by God. That's the irony in it. I'm the one that needs to be controlled by God in those moments. Second way I'm tempted to test God. I will judge him. Israel questioned God. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us, our children, our livestock with thirst? It's basically this. Israel is saying things like, like we say. Since I turned to Christ, things are getting worse. Really, is this how it's going to go down? You're punishing me for past sins. That's what this is. You tried to trick me. You've brought me out here, and this is because of my past catching up to me. Why did God give me these kids? God, what are you doing? Why this? Why this disability? Why this temperament? Why this trouble? Why this spouse? Why this body or mind or emotions? And we judge God and say, you've made a mistake. We won't maybe say it like that, but that's what we mean. Why God? And we put him to the test. And then we speak with authority like a prophet or a prophetess. This is what's going to happen now. There's no way out of this. It's got to look like this. I knew it. And we start claiming things, but we don't know. And we put God to the test. 
God is not to be judged. God cannot be judged. Now you can judge him, but he can't be judged. You cannot find fault with God, ever. He does what he pleases, and it's always good. When temptation comes, I must ask him to test me. That's the irony. I test God when temptation comes. I have to ask him, test me, God. Test my heart right now. God, help me. I need to be tested. When temptation comes, we must turn to God. Third and final is this. Turn to God only and worship him. Look at verse 8, back to Matthew 4. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Another occasion for sin. He says in verse 9, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Okay. He's taken to a point, certainly there's not a mountain high enough that you'd be able to see all the kingdoms of the world, even in that day, but he's able to see them. So maybe a vision or whatever, but it's real, and it's there. And he sees this. Now, you look at verse 9. Okay, that's what's before him, and then Satan says, you can have that if you worship me. Now, if you're like me and you're reading this for the first time, or just, just now, I'm thinking, like, that's not even a temptation. Are you kidding me? Worship me? Worship Satan. If someone says to you today, you should worship Satan, are you like, man, oh, that's tough. I am so tempted right now. Never, right? So what is going on here? That seems like a no-brainer to me. And here's the thing, is it is? It is? And we would say, that's crazy? That Satan would even offer that. I had a good friend of mine say this to me once. He said, sin is insanity. I think that's a great way of looking at it. It doesn't have to make sense. Truly, when you're sinning, you are out of your mind. No matter what it is. You won't trust God. You won't believe in God right now. You won't pursue God right now. That's crazy. That's what sin is. And we think this is a no-brainer. That is all of sin, is insanity. But it's the promise behind the request that is appealing. Worship me. Why? Because look what you can have. All the kingdoms, all the power, all the glory, all the splendor. These kingdoms aren't fake. They're real. He sees them and they're real. It's real power that's being offered to him. Okay, like it's, it's, it's real riches and glory that's being offered. But they're not the true riches. And it's not the true power. And that makes all the difference. They're not fake. They're there. But they will not last. And they will not hold water. They are truly counterfeit. And for the first time, look what Jesus does. In verse 10. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For the first time up to this point, He's just said, it is written, and then he's only spoke scripture. And now he says for the first time his own words, be gone, Satan. And maybe you're thinking this morning, I have done this. I've done this. I did this today. I've done this over and over, and it's not helping. But look what Jesus continues to say. He doesn't just say, be gone, Satan. He says, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So as you say, be gone, Satan, 
and you attempt to try to stop thinking and stop looking and stop saying and feeling and doing, and you, you say, be gone, Satan, I need to stop these things, you have to, at the very same time, start saying, come, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And you need to start thinking. And you need to start feeling. And you need to start looking. And you need to start saying. And you need to start doing. You need to start worshiping God. Now, at this point we should be thinking, and I'm sure you're all just dying right now thinking, wait a second, what did Jesus quote? Right? We've looked at that twice already. You're probably all thinking that right now. So that's a great question to have in your head. Where did Jesus pull from? Where did he pull from? Because it's important. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6 again. Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, to be specific. I want to read for you verses 10 to 13. It says this, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great food, or sorry, with, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses uh, full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then here's verse 13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. God is telling them, when things start going well for you, when I provide everything that you need, and he says it there, cisterns and houses and vineyards and food and you're full and you're out of slavery, do not forget me. Do not forget that everything comes from me. And so he says, worship me, fear me. Isn't it interesting, the word here, fear? It's worship. Fear me. Everything comes from him. Worship me. No other gods. Now, he says, swear by me. It's sort of like the Swiss army knife, right? It does everything, apparently. I just swear by it. Man, what do you need? I got it. Swiss army knife, right? It does everything, and you swear by it. This, this thing that apparently will meet every need that you have. God is saying, swear by me. Swear by me. No, I'm, I'm the one, actually, that does that. God is asking for us to worship him alone. Full-on worship. He is, in fact, all we need. Everything else is a lie. He's asking us to put all our eggs in his basket. Okay, so if it's pleasure, if it's comfort, if it's security, if it's identity, if it's approval, if it's companionship, if it's a hope, it's all from him. Worship me alone, he says. Swear by me. There's no, there's no second best. There's none. That's a lie. I believe that so much in my life. The world does not have music, and it, it, it does not have philosophy and counseling and science. It has nothing. It doesn't have pleasure and hope. It has nothing. God has it all. That's the call to worship. He has it all. And God is saying, fear me, it all comes from me. Don't forget this. And what a fitting um, word for us in our culture now. Things are so easy. This is a, man, this has to hit home. 
It all comes from him. The world's like, no, it comes to commercials. This is it. Everything you need. Quick, easy. This is it. No, it's not. David Powelson says this. I'll quote on the screen for you, and I think it's helpful. He says, every one of us <clears throat> all the time is simultaneously operating in the vertical dimension and the horizontal. So I'm either worshiping and trusting the true God or something else. There's no static moment. We are worshipers. You are worshiping God or something else right now. This is what happens. This is just how it is. Now, we are being constantly called to worship other things. We see other kingdoms, and we see their glory. And the world is good at putting it up on a pedestal. It's sort of like um, if you've gone to car shows before. My father-in-law loves car shows, so I've gone. What do they do at the car show? They open the hood, they rev the engine, they shine it up. You see the car at its best. Let's say you go out and say, I'm going to buy that car now. I saw it in all its glory. I mean, they, they showed you something pulling something. Look at the power of this, whatever it would be. And then what happens? Well, a couple months later, you're at the Zabos. Because the car isn't what it all promised. <laughs> right? It's, it's not. You saw, yes, it was real glory, but it's not true and it doesn't last. And this is the appeal of the world. And it's the promises that draw us. God is not the only one who makes promises. Satan makes a promise here. Did you see that? Satan makes a promise. I'll give this to you. But God makes promises, and God is the only one who can keep promises. God is the only one who keeps them. In many ways, the kingdoms of the world are offering the same thing that God is. This will bring you identity. Yes, it will, but not without confusion. And this is going to bring you pleasure, yes, but not without guilt and shame. This will bring you control, yes, but not without damage. The promise is this will offer you comfort, but it's not going to last. You're going to be thirsty again. You're going to be hungry again. There's going to be another wilderness again. And what will you do then? What do, what do I do then? Well, there's only one who gives living water. Amen? And there's only one who says that he is the bread of life. There is only one, and he is the one that we worship. He's the one that we go after. We put all our, ba all our eggs in that basket. So when temptation comes, turn to God only and worship him. And then you will find him worthy and satisfying in ways that you never understood. And people look at it and say, this makes sense. You should be miserable. But, but you're tapping into something that's called God. And he's sufficient. So after Jesus' final temptation, we're told in verse 11, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So ministering this idea, almost like deacons, they're they're feeding him, they're watering him, they're looking after his needs. So God came through at the right time. God provided everything that he needed. Now, the parallel passage to this is Luke 4. And what Luke 4 says in verse 13 is interesting. It says, he departed from him until an opportune time. The idea is he's coming back. And there'll be more temptation. And there'll be other wildernesses. And the question is, when temptation comes for you and I, where will you turn? And now, 
to close, I want you to consider this. If looking at Matthew 4, 1 to 11 this morning has maybe just weighed on you more guilt and you feel like, okay, I just need to do better like Jesus, then you're missing the whole point of Matthew 4, 1 to 11. And maybe I failed in being clear, so I want to be clear now. If you hear nothing else, and we're almost done, so now you can pay attention. If you you hear nothing else, then hear this. Jesus was an example. We saw it here. He turned to God, yes. And we can draw from that, and I think that is right and good. But Jesus, in being an example, pulled from Scripture to show very plainly there's no accident in the Spirit leading him to the wilderness to do what? To do what Israel could not do, to do for Israel and for me what I cannot accomplish. I cannot fight temptation. I can't do it, and I certainly can't erase the past. Jesus Christ made it super clear. I am the better Israel. I am getting through this wilderness, and he did. He says, I'm the one that's going to get out of the wilderness. Then I'm the one from there that's going to go to the cross. And then I'm the one that's going to come up out of the grave. Amen? Then I'm the one that's going to sit at the right hand of the Father. And then I'm the one that's going to usher in this kingdom. Right? The one he preaches in verse 17. Right after this, he starts his ministry in verse 17 of chapter 4. says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this morning, then, perhaps this morning, you need to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you think the Christian life is just trying harder and bearing down and just being more like Jesus, you're missing the point. You can't be more like him. You have to have faith in him. Because you fail, and I fail. And so this morning, if you are still in your sin, and you have been attempting to try to get through the temptations, and attempting to be good enough, and somehow know, now I'm through the wilderness, then I'm pleading with you to repent of your sin, and to see Christ, who is the better Israel, your substitute, who perfectly obeyed, right? Act of obedience, and perfectly bore the penalty of sin. Passive obedience. Would you believe and trust in him? And if you have, then now what we do, when we say we turn to God, we look first to Christ. Not just as an example, but as the one who bore our sin and made it through the wilderness. And then that gives us motivation and courage to be able to have victory for the first time through temptation and not in some other way. Our God is awesome. Praise God for Christ. We will turn to him again and again and again.